0: but most modern apps are going to require some form of audit trail if dealing with things like finances, health information, private documents, or online sales. While practically everyone has to deal with audit trails, a lot of organizations handle them very poorly. In this episode, we're going to discuss the basics of creating audit trails in your software, as well as some common First timer pitfalls to avoid. But before we get started, Will, what have you been auditing this week?
1: Uh, Well, this actually kind of ties into the audit trail thing. Um, it looks like C Sharp 6 is going to have a date only type and a time only type, which keeps it from passing the date time with the time zone in when you don't want that. Do you mean .NET 6? .NET 6, yeah. That's a 5? You said C Sharp. C Sharp's on 9. Yeah, C Sharp not. Yeah net sticks. Gosh, I hate the way they version something it's like please let's let's make this as hard as possible yeah anyway so it's it's gonna have both separate and and those are two separate user intents right like there's there's a thing of i'm scheduling something at a date and a time there's things of I'm doing something on this date you know from this date to this date or you know here's my birthday like I don't put my birth time in right you know and if you have a task that's scheduling every day I don't you know, put the date part in. So it's nice that they finally saw some sense. So yeah, the um, clown car dumpster fire parade thing that happens with UTC conversions is not going to be happening anymore because we're going to be fixing a bunch of that very, very quickly when that comes out. Super excited about that. How about you?
0: Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. I was actually dealing with the dates today. We were adding a feature to our search to search by a date range, and so like what I did, I, I had to take it, put it into kind of a, li- a list of date times, sort that list, and then set the start date to midnight and the end date to midnight on the following day, or like the the day after it was the search ended. So yeah, that's that's going to be interesting, of course then you have to think about how it's going to deal with, uh, with other, like how, how is that object going to interact with, like, I won't be able to use it for this because it's not going to interact with the third party application that I'm using because they don't even work with.net core and told me they don't have any plans on it. And I'm like, well, that's special, but you know, whatever. So, uh, School, 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 Whew, dude. I have an assignment due tomorrow. Uh, manipulating image files—that's a lot of fun. Honestly, the the manipulation, like the vertical, horizontal flip, and the ninety-degree rotation—that's just
1: matrix math.
0: Yeah, matrix math, two D matrix um, or two D array stuff. No big deal. The tricky bit was reading in the the files. So that that was interesting are they bitmaps or it's net PBM file types I have no idea what that is it's a C++ library reading bitmaps anyway yeah so it's it's that still working on my project I mean I haven't touched it much I'm showing it to will right now but uh, it's just a stack of Raspberry Pis at the moment so I need to get get to finishing that uh, finally got the last of the components in this past week so I'm gonna have to finish that out but I'm told we're getting two more assignments to do. we only have two weeks of class left and in the whole semester we've only had two assignments so yeah not sure how that's gonna work out uh, I may be pulling some all-nighters the next couple of weeks the thing will's writing next week's episode too yeah I uh, I played the game cash flow at uh, the entrepreneur small group this past week.
1: Is that the Robert Kiyosaki one?
0: Is he the guy that wrote Rich Dad, Poor Dad? Yep, that's the guy. that it is. Yeah. I I don't know the name. I just knew it was by the guy who did the Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Yeah. That was a lot of fun. Uh, Kind of eye-opening, too. Like, to Mm -hmm. see how the different types of investments work and stuff. I came in second to last. (laughs) Uh, There's always Mississippi, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) uh, It was my first time playing, and... I would have won if I had thought to grab one of the big deal cards after I made a big sale and had like the money to do it. But I just defaulted and grabbed one of the small deal cards and it was a dud. And I'm like, Oh man, if I had grabbed a big deal card, I could have like the next guy who like the next person who grabbed a big deal card, he ended up winning the game. And I'm like, Oh dude, I could have won. had I grabbed that. Oh, well, it is what it is, you know, but uh, yeah. So big, exciting news. By the time this episode airs, I will have accepted a lead developer position. Woo-woo. Nice. Yeah, I know. It's pretty sweet. Uh, they've already made me a tentative offer and the paperwork has been sent to HR for approval and the final offer. I'm really excited about it. It's it's a move. It's going to it's. Not working where I am, so my team found out today a little earlier than I wanted uh, and not the way I wanted them to find out. It got slipped in an email, and I was like, oh, well, okay, I wanted to tell you guys myself once it was official, but yeah, I'm I'm leaving. So, uh, But it's it's exciting. It's going to be a good move. I have some friends who um, work there and then... One of the other lead developers, I know several people who have worked with him and I've had lunch with him a few times. Uh, I'm expecting to learn a lot from him. He's just really awesome. So it is a really good good thing. And I'm, I'm not leaving. This is the nice thing about it. I'm not leaving because I have to or anything wrong with where I currently work. I love my job. I love the people I work with. I'm leaving to move forward in my career and for a really awesome opportunity. And so that's that's what's nice and i i'm like i'm really excited about it it's just you know really cool so i'll keep you guys informed as as to how this goes i know our aftercast listeners have been hearing about the process for a little while so that's the the benefits of being on patreon is you get to hear about these things a little early so I, i'm a little more open on the on the private aftercast so they heard about the interview process and everything So guys, uh, even when you're, you're taking on a new job with uh, higher pay, saving money can be hard.
1: Lucas Casades is a fee-only certified financial planner. He owns and runs Level Up Financial Planning virtually out of Fort Collins, Colorado.
0: Yeah, and just like us here at the podcast, he focuses on helping you not only establish a real plan, but he helps you to take action so that you can live your best life.
1: Investing in financial planning services really comes down to whether or not you can improve your finances with the help of level up. The compounding impact of making better financial decisions will easily pay for itself, like Beige mentioned with the cash flow game. if he had made a better decision, he likely would have won absolutely it's it's a really big difference
0: It's amazing how that one decision that one mistake like and I I ended up you know breaking out of the rat race, but I was the second to last person to do it it delayed it by five or six more rounds. So like one, one decision can really, you know, can do that to you. And that's, that's what Lucas is, is here to help you with. Um, and the really cool thing about it is that he is a fiduciary for his clients. And what that means is that he's not selling you a product, but he's here to help guide you to a better financial solution.
1: And if you want to learn more and check out some of the resources he has, uh, those are available at levelupfinancialplanning.com.
0: While the typical user of your application probably won't be interested in your audit trails, that doesn't mean that you can get by without them. Whether it's due to regulatory compliance issues, security policies, or simply because you need to troubleshoot something in production, you'll have to deal with setting up and managing application audit trails at some point. Audit trails suffer from many of the same problems That logging does. While a simple implementation can be set up easily by a junior developer, you'll tend to find that these implementations don't work well over time at scale or for making quick diagnostic decisions
1: under pressure in production. When you start talking to people about audit trails, you'll also find that there are some persistent misunderstandings that are common. When we discuss audit trails, we really need to spend some time at the beginning breaking down what we're auditing, how we plan to audit it, and what we're looking for when we do it and how we expect to find it. Most of the time, when a business leader starts talking about audit trails, they have absolutely no idea what they're talking about and what they really want. Audit trails to them is basically a corporate buzzword, and it's been that way for quite some time.
0: So before we jump into the anti-patterns for audit trails, Let's talk about what is an audit trail. Now, Will wrote this outline, so of course he has a quote from Wikipedia in it. I told him I was going to pick on him about that.
1: Hey, their Google foo's good. They showed up at the top.
0: (laughs) True that, true that. All right, so from Wikipedia, an audit trail, also called audit log, is a securely relevant chronological record, set of records, and or destination and source of records that provide documentary evidence of the sequence of activities that have affected at any time a specific operation, procedure, event, or device. Audit records typically result from activities such as financial transactions, scientific research, and healthcare data transactions, or communications by individual people, systems, accounts, or other entities. There's a lot of lists in that uh, uh-huh. definition.
1: I'm glad you read it. Uh, <laughs> in fact, I kind of baited you by putting the Wikipedia, of course, because I thought that maybe you would bite at that at a chance to pick at me. So,
0: yeah, yeah you you know me so well.
1: I'm glad it worked. <laughs> it saved me some pain. Basically, the idea here is to have a way of listing out the sequence of events and other relevant information, such as who caused the event that resulted in a system state at a certain time. This information needs to be comprehensive, comprehensible, and secured in a way that prevents tampering. It's essentially evidence and is often a critical feature of applications that touch healthcare information, online transactions, personal information, financial data. Actually, pretty much, you're going to have these um, for the most part.
0: Audit trails are also useful for catching security issues. They provide evidence in courtroom proceedings involving computer systems And can be very helpful when debugging complex and rare system issues.
1: Yeah, and it's also helpful for making sure that you are up to security and compliance requirements. They're often required by governmental regulations such as HIPAA and by industry standards such as PCI DSS. There are usually data retention requirements that go along with those things. So, you know, here's your audit trail versus a log. And we're actually going to talk about that next. There are a lot of things that are like audit trails, but they are not audit trails. And the reverse is also true. Audit trails should not be used to provide these things in general, except uh, in cases of extreme duress.
0: Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Logs are for diagnostics and typically reflect changes to the system and operational state at a more granular level than is really useful for the audit trail. And sort of depending on where you are in the logging and like what you're doing. So if you're you're in development, you're probably going to have more like trace and info level logging um, as you're like tracking progress through a system. But in production, you might only have the error logging set up. So test is some blend of them because it just sort of depends on your testers.
1: <laughs> yeah, and you don't want somebody to make a configuration change that means that you don't have an audit trail. Yeah. That's extremely scary for business people, but exciting for auditors (laughs) because they know that you're writing a check. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Event streams reflect changes uh, operation by operation on an entity in a system. They're structured to make it easy to programmatically follow the changes in an object up to the present moment. But some auditable events are not going to be reflected here. You also tend to periodically snapshot these which makes them unsuitable for audit trailing. In other words, you take the stream and you compress it to here's the here's the new state. As storage gets cheaper, that may happen less and less, but you know, again, it's a concern. It makes it not suitable for use as an audit trail. Now you might use it to generate the audit trail in some cases. Like if you are retrofitting a system that has an event stream, that helps a lot. That makes sense.
0: Temporal tables in a database reflect data as it was at a particular point in time for historical reasons. But the requirements for reflecting how it got that way would require changes to your table design that may not be appropriate for your application. Also, there isn't a
1: one-to-one correspondence between an entity and a table. Right, because you don't want to be changing your database structure based around audit trails. You want to be making your application structure work for your app. Yeah. Yeah. And that
0: that makes sense because like there are things that you may store in the database that don't go all the way out to the front end because it's used for verification and stuff like that. There are things that you know the front end brings in or sends in that you may not be storing. Right. Yeah. And I can, I can absolutely see that. See, you want your audit trails to be based around what your application is doing, not the model on how it's storing like the data.
1: Right. Which is the same problem you have with uh, reporting database tables not being appropriate. Uh, These tables are often rebuilt and restructured as report requirements evolve. And having them be the source of truth for auditing purposes is going to get in your way big time. You may not be able to delete those tables and rebuild them if you need to, because it's got critical audit data in there. Exactly. Now, here's one that's database backups from a point in time are also not audit trails. Please tell me you don't consider this an option. (laughs) Because I know people that have. No, just don't do that. There's so many problems with that, (laughs) that. Audit trails really are their own thing, and you don't use other things for them or try to make them into other things. Like They're part of the system. They need to be treated as their own first class thing, not bolted onto something else.
0: So guys, in this episode, we're going to discuss some of the basics of audit trails and why some of the more simplistic approaches don't work. And the way we're going to do this is by talking about anti-patterns that occur in naive implementations. Uh, the idea here isn't to complain about bad implementations. We all know Will enjoys complaining. Sorry, I'm picking on him about that. But the the point is that by understanding why the bad implementations are bad, it's going to help you create better ones. Yeah.
1: And as far as the complaining thing goes, it's kind of like eating gas station food when you're driving somewhere on vacation. It's not the intent, but we're going to do it on the way. <laughs> So, anti-pattern number one, audit trails controlled at the application level by only tracking property changes. So, you got an object, you say, oh, the first name changed. Let's record that as the audit trail. And that's the extent of the audit trailing you're doing. This is an anti-pattern because your data is likely in a database that's controlled from outside the application or could be. So, you're not catching all the places it could change. Uh, Code and applications also tends to be a bit more volatile than the underlying database structure, at least once the app is stable. So you've created more opportunities for problems like where somebody doesn't put the audit trailing in.
0: Yeah, it's also more difficult when doing this to make sure that audit trail records are always written and always written in the same transaction as any changes the application creates.
1: Yeah, or saved at all. I've seen people create audit trails and then, you know, like their record and then not attach it to the DB context before they save. There's really (laughs) a lot of stuff that app developers don't think about the same way as DBAs do. And so this is a spot that even if you're good, your team may not be. And speaking of DBAs,
0: a DBA or really anyone with access to the database.
1: If you um, SQL inject enough, anybody can be a DBA.
0: (laughs) Wow. Uh, little bobby tables. Always gotta bring sure. him up. <laughs> is that Like if you drink enough, all JavaScript is. Uh...
1: If you believe enough, all JavaScript is open source.
0: Yeah, there you go. That's it if you believe enough. <laughs> uh, that's what it was. Uh, anyway, so a DBA or anyone with access to the database can really circumvent audit trails that are only managed by the app. Whether on purpose or on accident, I have I've seen not this with audit trails, but I've seen this with other things where early on in my career I was working with transitioning from you know to the to a more modern setup with the Angular and.NET background uh, in the back end and like the DBAs would be like, Oh, well, I'll just go make this change in the database. I'm like no, you can't do that because that like there's a process that triggers, and yeah, you're going to change that, but it's not going to be connected to anything else. And because they weren't used to that kind of structure, like you know, normalization.
1: Yeah, it's always fun when uh, somebody forgets the where clause. Like they're writing the first part of the statement, they forget the where clause, and their cat jumps on the keyboard. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's there's things that can go wrong, so you're you're going to want to have you know, a source of truth for audit trails that you know is better than this. Um, you're also going to want to make sure that the data is right. Once this same concept is why accountants use adjusting entries rather than simply adjusting a existing entry so that you can tell what happened, mm-hmm. right? Like the double entry accounting, that's like old school, you know, what Renaissance time period, uh, you know, audit trails on paper. Yeah.
0: Well, no, it's, it's, it makes it, I mean, it's an audit. It makes it trackable. Yeah, that's the point cuz you want you want to see the mistakes. Right. With that and, and, and be able to fix it. <laughs> yeah, that's the key because the whole point is, you know, someone might say, "Well, you made this mistake. If you overwrite it, then you can't say, yeah, I made that mistake. You can go, you know, but you if you don't, you can say, "Yep, here's where we made the mistake. Here's where we corrected the mistake." You can't prove that it was corrected if you don't see the mistake.
1: Right, so it could get corrected twice. Yeah. Uh, the second anti-pattern is no logging of DDL changes. And this is really important in a database scenario where your database is handling the audit trail, especially with triggers. DDL? Um, uh, data definition language. So your SQL that generates your tables and your trigger structures and your store procedures and all that kind of stuff. If you are assuming that you're storing this stuff in the database, which... You probably are, even if it's not your main database, it's going into some kind of data store. And it likely is something like this. It is common to do this in the application database itself, at least early on. Once it starts hitting your storage and causing you other problems, you may change that a little bit, which also gets tricky. Typically, you'll use a trigger to record auditing changes to another table. There's reasons I don't overly love that, but people do it. If you're not logging changes to the table structure, then someone can remove the trigger, make a bulk update, and then put the trigger back in a way that's hard to detect. And bear this in mind that a lot of times what you're trying to catch with audit trails is criminal activity, um, You know, at least in a lot of cases. So the people with the greatest motivation to tamper with audit trails are people that are already inside your building.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Now, automated database migrations might also occur. Uh, in some cases, this can mean a sloppy or Evil. unscrupulous yeah developer managed to get a script through your PR process assuming you have those and yeah it gets deployed and you need to be able to track that you know and figure out where it came from
1: yeah and it it gets kind of fun because you also don't want to store the ddl logs somewhere that regular users can get access to because they can be tampered with as well so it's sort of like finding the original random number and then using it in a random number generator. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> at some point you gotta have a random number. <laughs> That's a whole other discussion. But speaking of randos.
0: Yeah, so anti-pattern number three, no user identity in the audit trail. Yeah. I, I do remember when when we first started doing um, the I guess when I what, like five or six years ago when I first started my first job. It was helping train like build new, like replace existing systems from like very database centric. And one of the big things that the the DBA was like, well, if it goes through the application, through this API, then we're not gonna like it doesn't log who who touched it. Right. And um, we had to address that. Yeah, you need to know who did something. You know, this is the simple part, but a lot of times it can be overlooked when something like a web application is making changes to data on behalf of the user. Like that's the situation we were in where we started building it and we're using a service account on the database and they're like, well, we can't log, you know, we can't track who made these changes.
1: I wish SQL and some of the others would actually have metadata that you could put on a connection to say, here is the web or here's the here's my application user that is accessing this thing, pass yeah. that on through and make it available in a variable. You know, that would, that would really, actually, that may exist. Now that I think about <laughs> it, I've, I've wished for that, but I've never actually looked. So that may be a thing. I probably ought to look that up. But um,
0: Yeah, if the user information isn't passed through, uh, you're going to have more difficulty telling the difference between a user's action and security violations that allowed one person to access another person's data.
1: Yeah. Identity also gets really complicated really, really quick. Most of the time we go, the person is who they are, but that's not entirely true in most applications. Uh, There's the user account that you mentioned before that's used to log into the database or the service account, however you want to. I've seen some pretty sketchy things, so (laughs) it's a Windows user or a SQL user or it's a whatever. And that's one thing, and that complicates stuff. But you also have your app user, and that's fine. But you might have other features such as support being able to impersonate a user and do stuff on their behalf or see what they're seeing because they're trying to get you know, information out some way. You may have automated processes. What happens when an automated process calls in and processes a payment on behalf of the user? I need to know that it's that process doing the thing on behalf of that user and I need to know the database user potentially. So it, it gets a lot hairier than you might think. This is... One of the really uh, obvious reasons why audit trails that are simply a copy of all the fields in a particular table, just that concept doesn't work. Because what are you going to do? Oh, I'm going to make an audit table that's got all that crap in there. And every time I add a new way of looking at the data, I've got to add a bunch of columns and backfill and do all this other crazy stuff. And by the way, touch my existing audit trail to fill those in that are now required.
0: Yeah. So the next anti-pattern that we have is but it's difficult to search noisy audit trails.
1: Yeah. So if you're putting everything in there, every last change in the app, that may not be appropriate. Um, A lot of people are like, oh, we'll, we'll keep all this data in case something happens. Okay. If a person changes their user avatar, do I really want a copy of their previous one kept there? Like maybe the app requires that, but maybe it doesn't. And if I, am putting it in there and I don't need it, then I just wasted a bunch of space and made the data harder to search.
0: What if they want to revert back to their old one
1: from 10 years ago? Then they need to paste it back up. <laughs> yeah. They need to pay Wait. more. The answer is more green pictures of dead presidents. If you don't do that, you don't get the feature.
0: Just uh, do, like, do like Facebook does and with your, your profile picture and just like throw it into a an album and just keep all the old ones as far back yeah. as... You know, 20 years ago. Has that been around 20 years?
1: It's been around a long time. Um, But what this means when you do this is there's more data stored in the audit trail that's required uh, than is required. And it can also mean that the structure of the data makes actual use of the audit trail more difficult. So the programmer was told make the audit trail. They did the audit trail, but they didn't actually make it usable. So it's if you were doing this passively, aggressively, it would really take somebody off, but they just know that you're dumb. So you get away with it. Adding to the fun, the entries in the audit trail should be taking place at the same time that other data is being changed or you have a risk that the entry is going to get skipped, right? Transactional integrity going on here. This means that you can't overload your audit trail table with a bunch of indices or you'll kill write performance and slow your app down.
0: Yeah, it's true. Audit trails that are improperly indexed based on how they're expected to be searched, they're going to slow the whole thing down and use a lot of system resources. If the reason for an audit is particularly severe, you might have to run it in business hours on production.
1: Right. Like the FBI comes in and, you know, somebody has been trading radiological materials through your app and they need to know because they think it's in your city. Guess what? That's running on production right now and it doesn't matter if it takes your app down. Now, hopefully... You know, like the sequence of events where that could happen, pretty low. But there's some others that are not so low that are, frankly, pretty awful, too. So you you don't want to be in that situation. Noisy audit trails that have too much data are also a problem in terms of storage. So it takes a lot of time and disk space to back them up, restore them, and you just have to keep the stupid things. There's a maintenance overhead for doing this. And you really haven't lived until you've taken down a production database by adding an index to an audit table with hundreds of millions of rows. I have done that. It really sucks. (laughs) It's like, hey, this index has to be there. But we did it in the middle of the day and it was not good.
0: No, no, I I imagine not. Anti-pattern number five. It's like Mambo number five, but not as popular. (laughs) Sorry. Well, actually, it may be more popular. (laughs) Timing and date issues. Your audit trails have to also include some indication of when something happened. Uh, That's what's used for determining the sequence of events that occurred. Uh, Now, while this doesn't sound like something you'd mess up easily, yeah, right, Uh, dates and times are extremely annoying as we were discussing uh, earlier and what will you did three episodes on date time.
1: And I put a fourth one in the Kanban board while we were talking earlier. (laughs) Just so you know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Date times are uh, are a mess, a mess and a half really.
1: Yeah. And a timestamp can help you, but you need to be aware that if the time is coming from some other system, that it may be using a different time zone, Uh, could be using a different calendar even potentially, whatever you do, don't store the date and time as a string. I do have anecdotes. I do not think I can share those without an inappropriate amount of profanity because that was very unpleasant. The time is also tricky when you have like a long running or deferrable task. So do you record the time of the change when it happened or when it started or when the system finally caught up to it? Because those things matter. And which event, matters from an audit perspective can kind of, um, can kind of be strange. I guess is the best way to put it, this can be a real issue by the way, if something happens after uh, someone believes that they did it, because this can grow into a false positive for a security issue. Cause they're like, Oh, I changed this at 10 o'clock in the morning. It didn't change. And I'm like, well, that's fine. I'll leave it alone. And then they come back later and it's changed. And then they freak out and think their account has been breached. People will call you over this kind of crap.
0: Yeah. I mean, and then when you go in audit,
1: it's like, oh yeah, it looks like a security breach. Let's run around with our hair on fire and call the CIO, at, you know, off the golf course. And it turns out that, oh yeah, we just did something dumb with our audit trail. Yeah,
0: that makes sense.
1: So, anti pattern number six. I'm letting you announce them since you do it. So, uh, announcery ish. Oh, thank you. I was
0: like, I, I look up and Will's like looking down, playing with his phone. I'm like, right,
1: no, I'm I guess not playing I'm with I'm my
0: it. Oh, you're not. <laughs> I'm playing with a pencil. Oh, okay. I see what it is. I see what it is. All right.
1: I drop my phone too much <laughs> when I do that. It's too loud.
0: It's Anti-pattern number six, log flooding storage problem. Yeah, You'll also want to make sure that your audit trails can't be flooded with a bunch of junk. And you may not want to log every change. We've talked about this already, how you you don't want to log every single thing going into the system it's not worth doing. You you just need to log the important events. Now, depending on how you create your audit trail entities, uh, you could end up creating a bunch of them when you really don't need them. Uh, For instance, if you have an object with properties that logs its changes every time a property setter is invoked, even if there wasn't an actual change, Uh, a poorly written function in your application can flood the audit trails with records
1: that show no change. And guess when you're going to notice this? When you actually have a problem. You're going to notice it when the auditor is sitting next to you. That's no fun. Uh, You should also consider what happens if your audit trail data is on different storage than your main application. This could mean that a failure in audit trail storage breaks your app. Um, And the alternative can sometimes be worse. So you really don't want too much data where this becomes a problem. Anti-pattern number seven, (laughs) degraded performance during ops. See, I can do the radio voice too, apparently. Go for it, bro. This brings up a problem (laughs) we talked about earlier. As your application ages, your audit trails will absolutely dwarf your main application tables in size. This means things like indexing, backups, all that kind of crap keep getting slower over time. While our previous discussion touched on insert performance and indexing, realize that your audit trail itself will get slower to work with over time if it's not properly managed. And it's going to degrade at a rate that exceeds the rate of degradation in your application. Um, Unless all the relevant parts of the app are right once, in which case I'm not really sure what you're auditing, but that's a whole nother thing. This also makes your backups and your restores a lot slower And this can mean a lot more downtime.
0: Yeah, even if your database is in the cloud, it's still going to like weigh it down. Users will not be able to use your application while the database is being restored. Unless, of course, your database engine
1: supports this. I don't know of any, but I conceive that it's maybe possible in some circumstances. But yeah, I I don't see that. Not in a relational database. Like that's not going to happen in Oracle as far as I know.
0: This also can mean that things like continuous deployments are a lot more difficult. For instance, if you're migrating your schema while deploying, a change that requires a lot of work on the audit trail table could cause the migration to timeout. Uh, if nothing else, the wait time will make your DevOps process a lot slower and just lower the team throughput
1: all together. Yeah, we actually have run into this at work before where a database migration was not a problem in production, but it killed us on our QA servers. Because you think about it, QA is running scripts all the time and they're putting crap in the database potentially faster than the users. And it's on a, let's say, not as strong of a VM (laughs) as the production environment is. And so, yeah, you you add an index and it blows everything up where you have a, a migration that you're like, oh, yeah, we need to change, uh, you know, the type of this record for some reason. You know, we've, we've added a, an enumeration member and we're like, okay, find the set that looks like this and change it in bulk. And it's not a big deal on the developer machines, maybe it doesn't hit the QA machines because they don't have all the auditing stuff set up the same way. But then you roll it out to production and the migration times out,
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: And by the way, uh, you, you kind of have partially applied other migrations. Like if you're not doing continuous deployment, there may have been five migrations and you applied three of them. And so now you've got to script that one in the middle, get it out and then run the rest of the thing to get it going because production is down potentially. That, that is thoroughly unpleasant. Uh, the other thing that really hits you is when you're trying to uh, roll stuff out to a server that you're testing on. Right, so the dev does a PR. It goes through a little build process. Uh, our build process, by the way, is like ten times faster than it was a month ago because one of the other developers got really ticked off about it and fixed it. But migrations will go out there, right? Well, if it slows, you know, the the deployment to those servers, like your developer is sitting there waiting while that's happening, unless they're able to work on multiple tickets. And your QA is potentially waiting. And so it introduces lag time in your DevOps process that can be really expensive and really hard to track.
0: Yeah, but dude, just downtime in general is, is frustrating. I was working on um, something with our, our QA on this project and we got it, we got it working. It was running locally. Uh, tests were all passing. I'm like, all right, I'm going to push it up. He's like, all right, I'll see you in 20 minutes yeah <laughs> you know, and that's what it was. And then of course you know you have like like with this, you have something where you have like a a build error or something like that um, or a deployment error and it just throws the whole thing off. Uh, of course, that's when you kind of want to make sure you can with your continuous deployment roll back. but we're not talking continuous deployment here. we're talking anti-patterns of uh, creating audit trails. So, with that, our uh, our final anti-pattern here, anti-pattern number eight. Not accessible to non-tech-savvy people.
1: Right. Your audit trail should be accessible to somebody with tech skills, right? Like, at a bare minimum. And that seems to be where a lot of people stop. But if you're using it for... You know, diagnostic purposes, that's fine. Um, But a lot of the folks that build up audit trails and write the code that does this don't spend enough time thinking about the access patterns, which, by the way, we're going to cover in the Aftercast specifically. But, you know, people don't think about this stuff. So you, you may need to realize that, hey, there's a group of users out here, essentially, that I'm not serving with my app. And oh, by the way, when they show up, they have badges or it's, you know, you know, it's pertinent to a lawsuit, you know, or it's, you know, very high level members of the company or there's a mad customer that's on the phone with somebody and they can't get an answer quickly. It's never good. Like when these get used, like you want that to be smooth. You don't want this to be bad. Trust me.
0: You know, it's interesting because it, not audit trails, but uh, error logging.
1: It's got a lot of the, the same, same characteristics. Yeah.
0: I know I know we said they're they're different, but in this one particular, it's very important because I know I kind of have led the the application level logging initiative, getting everybody to using it and logging to a database and stuff like that. One of the things that I've sort of side projects I've had with our our UI lead is building a log viewer. Because right now, if like QA finds a bug, they can't look at the logs unless they go into the database. If they're, you know, we have some who have some programming background and they like they're comfortable looking in a database at stuff and others are not. So having just just a simple crud app that sits, you know, obviously internal and stuff, but like where they can go in and go, hey, you know, I had this error. Let me look up this application, the error is there. Oh, hey, here's what's going on. It just, it makes life so much easier. And the same thing with with your audit trails too. You know, having access to them is, is very important.
1: Yeah, one thing that also gets fun, um, at least in distributed systems, is the concept of distributed audit trails, which happens, right? Like if you've got a um, compliance boundary, so like you've got one app that's under PCI scope, And the rest of your app is not. It's probably got separate audit trails for its stuff. How do I go out and correlate something somebody did in the web app with something that happened in a Lambda function that's in PCI scope back to a batch processing thing that's on the back end of the system? And then go to some other, you know, third party system that is for shipping some product out. And how do I tie all that together? Now, think about how you would do this programmatically and realize, hey, this is awful. And then start thinking, how do I do it when the CEO is standing behind me? Because that's the, the real deal here. It's, um, it's really, really rough. Uh, so, like, let's say you got support, you know, that wants to verify stuff. That's, that's one thing. But you still don't want those people asking questions all the time either, right? Like, you don't want them interrupting development for this because you're not going to get anything done. Or, you're, or worse, you're going to screw stuff up.
0: Yeah. I mean, part of doing that whole, like building that log reader was because, like, like I said, it, mainly for QA and the BAs, they're like testing or user acceptance testing. And if they find something, then they have to take a developer's time to go look into it. Whereas if they have access to the logs, they can go, oh, hey, here's... Here's what's going on. Um, same with support; they find something, they can look at it, and go, "Oh, here's what's going on. This is a user error versus you know something else." And so, like they can they can do that and seriously save. It, it's it's not just saving developer time; it's saving their time too. Because let's say let's say you're working on an application and support. Like somebody calls support, they're having an issue. Well, support, if they don't have access to this, they have to reach out to you and say, hey, here's the issue. You have to go look it up, figure out what's going on, get back to support and say, hey, this is a user error. They're just, they don't know what they're doing. They need training. Um, Whereas if support didn't have to do that, they wouldn't have to bother you. They don't have to sit and wait. The customer doesn't have to wait on support to reach out to you you to have a break in your schedule to go look at it and come back to support. And it just, it makes the whole process better.
1: Yeah. And it gets even more fun if there is some degree of forensic examination that's required. Oh yeah. So like if the police get involved or senior uh, level members of the company because there's a lawsuit or you you have legal discovery type stuff going on, the easier this is, the less involved you are. Um, while you might think that this makes you important if you're involved in this kind of stuff it's pretty much never positive um everybody's emotions when something is going on like this are extremely negative and you don't want to be associated with that yeah if it's forensic and the police are there it's even worse because if you say the wrong thing you could be called as a witness you could be right in the mix and you know have a whole bunch of time chewed up you could you know potentially Say something that costs you your job, because you, you know, you say something and it, you know, it leads to a rabbit trail that causes the company to get shut down. Uh, Whether they're guilty or not, that happens. It's really not worth doing, you know, unless you actually suspect something's going on. You really don't want to be there. And in that case, if you suspect something's going on, being the guy running the audit trail thing, probably uh, that's not your role.
0: It it can easily get you. In a lot of trouble if you if you have to deal with this, it's just I don't know it, it's one of those things that you just sort of want to not be involved in if you can.
1: Yeah, because the stakes are so high. I mean that's that's really what this whole thing is about, right? is reducing risk. like that's why you have audit trails. And if you're the person that has to go retrieve those for management when they're mad, Management associates you with being mad, and any mistake you make, they're already ticked off when you make it. And it's it's way better to have this kind of front-loaded and not be in that situation. If you're writing code, you'd better learn how to construct a proper audit trail that is actually usable for its intended purpose. While having audit trails, in air quotes, is often just a buzzword for management, it's often one of the most critical pieces of an application. While regulatory compliance is a big part of the reason for extensive audit trails, it's not the only reason. Audit trails are also very useful for detecting major problems with your application, insider threats to your company, and they can be useful for support personnel as well. That pretty much wraps us up. Beach, what do you have for us this week for Tricks of the Trade?
0: So guys, audit trails help you track uh, when things happen in like a large application or system of applications. Uh, you're able to follow the path that a user or tester took, you know, fat to find issues, to find when things aren't happening or like security issues, things like that. The thing is, the concept is not only useful for computing, but can be applied to your own life. Tracking is often the first step in making changes. Uh, for example, if you want to lose weight, you could start by tracking the foods you eat when you eat them and your mood or your state when eating. This is used, uh, I, I kind of learned this a lot in the graduate program I was in for psychology because I was doing a lot of behavioral psychology and on that end of the spectrum of like different types of counseling and stuff. Um, and it's it's very common to start with a baseline of just tracking what you're doing. Uh, and it's amazing because I've done this myself with with weight loss, for example. When I start tracking my food, one of the things that I've noticed is later at night is when I tend to have the worst amount of like the worst eating patterns. Like I'll be great all day long. Like stay, you know, when I'm on a diet, within the diet or whatever. But come eight or nine o'clock, I'm sitting there, I'm kind of just relaxing, getting ready for bed, maybe watching a little TV to wind down, and that's when you know I eat a whole bag of cookies or something like that. Just sitting there snacking, and I don't realize it. Like you don't notice you're doing that. Uh, another thing that I found from just tracking was that. I tend to go and just grab a handful of chocolate-covered raisins because I like to keep those as just quick snacks. And I, I thought, hey, these will be great because one or two not too many calories curb the sweet tooth. Uh-uh, I was eating handfuls of them a day. They're addictive. They are. They really are. They're so good. So like, I, I limit how many I, I buy. But the thing is, it's going to give you kind of a baseline for starting to make changes. Uh, And you can apply this concept. It doesn't have to just be weight loss, but it can be almost anywhere in your life where you want to make a change. Uh, Do you need to save up for a new car or a PS5? I hear they're kind of expensive. You can start tracking your finances to see where and why you're spending money. I I do this with uh, the Every Dollar app. And it really helps because I'll go through a month and I'll just be tracking like, Wow, I spent a lot of money on gas and realized, oh, yeah, I traveled a lot this month or, you know, drove out of town a few times. But sometimes I'll just, I'll notice I'm spending a lot of money going out to eat. What's going on? And it's because I, you know, didn't run to the store, like didn't go grocery shopping on my normal day. And so I just ate out a lot more. Do you need to stop? Uh, doing a bad habit like smoking or chewing tobacco. You can start tracking like when you smoke, what's going around on around you when you do it and your mood before and after, just to get a baseline and and start working on slowly like reducing that. The idea here is that you can apply this concept to your life to help identify ways to make positive changes. So you know, Like this whole, the whole idea of audit trails is to provide that, you know, security and, you know, of here's what happens so that we know we can go back and we can look and we can figure things out. We can do that with your life if you need to figure out, like, why am I not losing weight? Uh, Which is my issue was, like, why am I not losing weight? I've been dieting, I've been exercising, and I'm just like, I can tell I'm gaining more muscle, but I'm not losing Like, I'm not getting thinner like I should. And it was, oh, yeah, I'm, you know, eating a whole day's worth of calories from 8 to 9 p.m. every night without even thinking about it because I'm just sitting there snacking. And when I started tracking it is when I realized that. So, you know, just a lot of the concepts we talk about on the show can be applied to your life. And this is one of the most useful ones, in, in my opinion. So that's pretty much all I've got, guys. Uh, We talked about it a little bit in the episode. We got some really cool stuff coming up in the Aftercast, which uh, you can check out on Patreon, and we'll have a link to Patreon in the show notes. Uh, We'll catch you next week. Standby for Titanfall.
1: If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Standby for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. For references, show notes, and extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website
0: at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Help us make the show possible by supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. You'll get extras, including a weekly aftercast where we discuss the topic of the week and bonus material with some of our patrons.
1: You can also follow us on Twitter at complete pod like our page on Facebook, and follow us on Instagram to keep up with news about the show. Join the conversation anytime via Slack by signing up at slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.